So what a, what a good segue into what we're talking about today. When the lies speak louder than the truth. Um, I'm a little older than some of you, a little younger than others of you, but I remember growing up when we'd go into uh, grocery stores, I would always be mesmerized by the checkout line. Um, I don't know that they have World News Daily in the checkout lines anymore, do they? Uh, the tabloids, there's some, there's some tabloids that are still there, but World News Daily always took the cake, right? Um, because, you know, we talk about a lot about fake news. You hear, you hear that term thrown around uh, all the time on, on the TV now. We knew exactly where to find the fakest of all news growing up because World News Daily um, and the National Enquirer back then would have headlines like this, um, which, you know, you'd go through uh, for, for entertainment purposes. You'd, you'd always look at it, but I don't know anybody, although I'm sure they were out there because people bought the thing, kept it in business, but... Um, I don't know anybody that really took anything seriously out of either of those two tabloids. Well, at some point, I know those, those are still out there, uh, but at least the National Enquirer decided that they, at some point, were going to kind of move away from the extreme, 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 and take a little bit step into just the, you know, extreme, the 4X extreme or something. And now when you go through the checkout line, you can see National Enquirer, and they've stepped up to things that for a certain population or people with a certain set of presumptions would be a little bit more plausible because getting these fake stories out there can, can take off a lot easier when there's a group of people that's predisposed to believe what they say. So you see things like this on here. Um, on, on National Enquirer's um, in more modern, uh, more modern uh, generations. Um, and of course, that progresses to, uh, to websites like The Onion, who are completely open about the fact we're putting out fake stories just because it'd be funny if these things were true, right? Sat satire type things. And then there's the whole political discussion about fake news. Once, you know, there's, there's the, the concern over whether... Uh, whether groups were putting fake news stories out to influence an election. And then another group took that, that whole story and took the phrase fake news and started throwing it back on, on others that they, that they didn't like the slant of the stories that were coming at them. And so we throw this term fake news around a lot. The fear around fake news, the reason why this works people up so much is because there's a fear that if something comes at us that's disguised as news, that's disguised as truth when it's not actually that, um, and if we end up believing that because it's in such a good disguise, then it might lead us into doing some things that we wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, supporting positions, voting for candidates, doing, treating people in certain ways. It'll lead us into doing things we don't want to do because the stuff we're taking in... Um, thinking that it's true actually isn't. So that's why we get so emotional about this whole idea of is, is, the, is the stuff we're taking in true or is it not true? So the passage we're going to look at today as we continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount um, is going to talk a little bit about that. What, and and the, the question for us is, what if the stakes were even higher than who you're going to vote for what decisions you're going to make on which policies you're going to support and which ones you're going to reject and all of that. What if, what if the stakes were what you're going to base your entire life on? That's the, that's the topic of the passage we're going to read today. So Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. 
For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, if, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name... Uh, drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So for past several months, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're coming close to the end of it now. We've got this week, and then Scott will close us out next week uh, before we move on in some, to some other areas of teaching. But the Sermon on the Mount has some challenging messages for us. Challenging to live out, but they're pretty, pretty simple, pretty plain spoken, pretty, pretty easy to understand what he's saying in most cases. But a lot of people, because of how difficult they are to live out and how much they rub, they, 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 they run against our, uh, our natural way of doing things, a lot of people have tried to find ways to explain their way out of them or to, to figure out ways to make them not apply to me. Um, and there's a, we, could, we could go into that a lot, but I like a quote that I found by a guy named Clarence Bauman. He said, Both Catholics and Protestants have been guilty of reacting to this material, the Sermon on the Mount, this material in such a way as to insist that Jesus either didn't mean what he said, or he didn't say what he meant, or that what he says applies to a different time than now, or in a different way than then. So we do all kinds of mental gymnastics. We do all kinds of theological gymnastics trying to trying to figure out ways that turn the other cheek doesn't actually mean turn the other cheek in this case. Or loving your enemies in most cases is good, but in this case there's a good reason that I don't have to do that. And so on and so forth with, with the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. And theologians, and this isn't, just, you know, this isn't just the average Joe on the street, theologians who spend their lives studying these things, they also a lot of times have focused much more of their energy on, I guess, the more mysterious or metaphysical parts of the Bible, trying to think about how, how does God actually know the future? What does it mean that God's sovereign? Um, how does the Trinity work? How do we understand that? They, they, they focus on these uh, more metaphysical questions that come up in Scripture without a lot of times putting nearly as much energy into actually obeying the things that are plainly said in Scripture, even though they might be difficult to live out. So I think this passage is one of those, um, talking about false teachers coming in and, and people that, 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 that call out to the Lord, but they're not actually believers. False teachers, false prophets, false believers, all of that. So when we read those, uh, those words, a few questions come to mind, and this is what we're going to try to answer today. Oh, my, my numbering got off there. So who are the false prophets then and now? How can, how can we recognize them? Who are the false believers? Could I be one of them? And what lessons can I learn? So that's kind of the, the roadmap for where we're trying to go today. I don't like sitting to teach, but my back's bad. So if, if you hear me go in the middle of my sentence, just forgive that. All right. Um, so 
that's where we're going. This is how we're going to get there, at least especially on that first question. Um, the way we understand all of this stuff is all about context, context, context. Okay, so what you do is you start with what you might call a macro context and then kind of slowly narrow down your focus to understand what he's talking about um, more narrowly. So we're going to look at what the rest of the scriptures say. This is the problem. When I create something on Google Docs and then it transmits over to PowerPoint, sometimes words disappear. So underneath that first arrow on the right there, it's supposed to say early church application. So we're going to start out by asking, what does the rest of scripture teach about this topic? Um, and then we're going to narrow it down and say, okay, when the early church read this passage, how do we see them applying this theme in the, in the, in the way they lived out church life? And then we're going to narrow it down a little bit more and say, okay, well, did Jesus, did Jesus say anything else about this? Or did, did he illustrate how this should be lived out in his life? And then you narrow it down a little bit more and say, okay, what else did he say in the Sermon on the Mount itself that might impact this? Okay, and then when you do that, you've kind of gotten more to the core of what the truth of the passage is. So we're going to real quickly try to run through a little bit of that. So first question that we're going to ask is, who are the false prophets? Who are the false prophets? Now, do not rely on Google to answer that question for you. <laughs> if there's any biblical teacher or theologian or preacher that you respect, if you Google that person's name with the word false prophet, you will find stuff. Because anybody that's got any kind of notoriety has been called out by somebody else as a false prophet. So Google's not, not your source for finding the answer to this question. Okay, When we back up and look at what the, the whole of Scripture says about, um, about false prophets, you, go, you start out going back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, um, let's see here. In the Old Testament, you, uh, you, you see a lot of prophets. There's, in, there's two sections of the Old Testament, the way the, the Old Testament is, is typically divided. You've got minor prophets, major prophets, and even in books that aren't labeled as being about the prophets, you see a lot of prophets. So they're all out, they're all over throughout the Old Testament. Most of us, a lot of times, will think of prophecy as being telling the, telling the future. When you tell the future, you're prophesying. And that's a, that's a part of what prophets did. But really what prophets were was people who um, just spoke on behalf of God. Sometimes that would entail telling things that were going to happen in the future. But it was also um, giving words of encouragement, rebuking people, speaking truth to the people who were in positions of power. All of those kinds of things were, were prophecy uh, back in the Old Testament. So that understanding of prophecy is what these people that were hearing Jesus talk about false prophets are bringing into um, that discussion. Um, you look at the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 13, and then again in Deuteronomy 18, and you see a couple of places where there were actually tests given to see who was a true prophet and who was a false prophet. Um, basically, he says, if somebody says that they're from God, but then leads people away from God, then that's one, that's one indicator that they're a false prophet. And then the other one is if they predict the future and then that future that they predicted doesn't come to pass, then they're a false prophet. And Israel was told to take those, those false teachers, those false prophets extremely seriously um, because they could come in in the name of God and lead people away from the purpose God had for them as a nation. Okay, So that's what the people are, are bringing into this, uh, this sermon that Jesus is preaching on the mount. And that's, what they're, that's, that's the presumption that they're bringing into uh, hearing those lessons. Okay? So when we go to the, to the early church application and see, okay, so that's what, that's what they brought into it. When we go beyond what Jesus said uh, into the future and see, okay, how did the people apply these things? You see a couple things as well. Okay? 
So after Paul started the church in Ephesus, um, he gave them this warning in Acts chapter 20. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. So you have this same imagery that Jesus used as a, as a, a wolf coming into a flock of sheep and doing damage. Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, he says. So the early church was, uh, was told to be aware of the presence of false teachers, false prophets. It was, part of, it was part of the charge that the apostles were giving to these churches as they started them, to be on, be on guard. And there's a lot of different things you can find about different, different uh, challenges they had in this area, but there were, there were two primary false teachings that they had to deal with in their time. There were the Gnostics who were, um, it wasn't a Christian philosophy, it was a, it was a pagan philosophy, but that it influenced a lot of thought back then. And any, any, anytime there's something that influences general thought in society, there's the, there's the danger that it bleeds into the thinking of the church. So the Gnostics, they basically said that there's the physical realm and there's the spiritual realm. Anything related to the physical realm is evil. Anything related to the spiritual realm is good. So we are basically sparks of, sparks of the divine that are living in a shell of something that is entirely corrupt in a world that's full of corruption, and not, not just full of corruption, that is itself by its very nature corrupt. And our, our goal is to transcend the corruption that is our bodies, our physicality, and to become something else. And so some of that thinking lingered into the church or kind of bled into the church, and they had to be on watch against that. Um, in the first few hundred years of the church, you, you saw the rise of, of ascetics, which were these monks who would go out and based on influence from Gnostic viewpoints, they would do what they call mortify the flesh, where they would actually beat and abuse their bodies on purpose as a way to kind of purify the evil that that body represented. And that was the, that's what they considered their service to God, was to remind themselves that, of how evil they are by very nature. And then even some modern Christians have a view of the body and a view of human sexuality that seems to kind of border on this too, where anything that causes physical pleasure, anything that involves our bodies, you got to look at, look at with suspicion as probably being bad because it's physical. Um, and you could go, you could go on and on about, about that, but it can border on more Gnostic viewpoints. But of course, the Bible teaches that our bodies and souls are unified. We have what you would call psychosomatic uh, unity. Uh, I believe that's the teaching of Scripture. One place that teaches that would be Romans 12, where Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He doesn't say present your minds to God. He doesn't say present your faith to God in this, in this text. He says present the physicality of who you are as a living sacrifice, as an object of praise to God. So God values our physical uh, existence, and he wants us to use that as a way to express love to him. Okay? So the Gnostics were one false teaching that they had to deal with in the, in the first century. Okay? The second main one that I'm going to address is what you would call, I guess, religious legalists, or um, you, you, would, you could call them Judaizers. These were, the, these were the really conservative religious scholars who had this view of the Bible that just basically looked at it as a legal code book. 
Um, and they, as long as somebody was following the letter of the law, they were good in God's eyes. It didn't matter what was behind their, their obedience. It didn't matter what was in their heart. And in the process, they missed God's heart entirely in doing that. In other words, they would say that living in a way that's pleasing to God is about the letter of the law. That's, what, that's, that's, the, that's the entire picture. So converts into Christianity, since Christianity started out as a, uh, as a message to Jews, converts into Christianity would be asked to get circumcised, to eat kosher, to follow all the Old Testament law. And as long as they were following those things on the surface, um, it didn't matter whether they got the heart of it or not. Um, they were good. So Paul, was, Paul talked a lot about the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And probably the most plain place that he spoke about is 2 Corinthians 3, 6, where he says the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So Paul is pushing against this false prophecy, if you will, this false teaching um, throughout. In fact, the entire book of Galatians, one of the main reasons the book of Galatians was written was to ad address this group that was coming in and preaching this letter of the law gospel which he calls a different gospel. He says when people come in and they say it's all about checking the boxes, doing the right things without regard for the heart of God behind it, without regard for, for the inner person, then that's a different gospel. That's not the gospel of Christ. And in Galatians, Paul says, let those people be, the old King James would say, let them be anathema or let them be rejected by you. So that was Paul's message about that. So when they... When, when people call you to the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law, they're actually calling you to a different gospel. Okay? So when the New Testament church is, is, re, is, is, is trying to enact these words of Jesus about false teachers, false prophecies, um, this is how you see it playing out. They're encouraged to take specific teachings and, um, and resist them. Okay? So... Narrowing it down a little bit more, Jesus' life and teachings. What does he say in other places and how does he live? So Jesus talks a lot about false prophets. Um, I had a bunch of texts that we were going to try to go over, but for time, I, I, I took them out. You can, you can use a concordance and find a lot of places where Jesus talks about false teachings, false prophets um, coming in among Christians. And he, usually when he does it, he uses this same type of energy, uh, imagery of bad trees bearing good fruit. Um, he does that a lot. And usually when he's using that imagery and talking about false teachers, he's referring to this, the Pharisees who happened to be the religious leaders of that day. Okay? They were the ones who he says are bearing bad fruit. But the, the bad fruit that they were bearing wasn't just how they lived. He also applies it to the things that they're actually teaching. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, um, make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? And then when he's talking to them about the bad fruit that they're bearing, he, he goes immediately into talking about the things that they're saying. So it's not just about the way they're living their lives. He says, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment, for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus seems to, seems to think that the, the teachings that they were giving was just as much a part of the bad fruit that they were bearing as anything else. Okay? Narrowing it down even further, we get to the immediate context. The Sermon on the Mount itself. 
What, does it, what light does it shed on what Jesus is saying here at the end of his sermon? So Jesus has just spent three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, calling his disciples to a certain lifestyle, asking them to, learn, to, to, to live in a certain way. So basically the idea here is if, he's, if he spent three chapters saying that and he comes to the end says, and he says, now if anybody's a false teacher, here's how I want you to regard them. Then the implication there is that anybody who's teaching anything um, contrary to what Jesus has laid out in this sermon would be a false teacher, would be somebody who's, who's, who's you would lump in with the false prophets, okay? D.A. Carson is a biblical scholar and... Uh, Here's something he said about this. He said, within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the false prophet can only be someone who does not advocate the narrow way presented by Jesus. So that's the, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it has to be someone who's not advocating the, the, the narrow way that Jesus is talking about. He may not be wildly heretical in other areas. Indeed, he may set himself up as a staunch defender of orthodoxy. But the way which he commends is not narrow or disturbing and therefore, he can gain quite a hearing. There's nothing in their preaching which fosters poverty of spirit. There's nothing which searches the conscience and makes men cry to God for mercy. There's nothing which excoriates all forms of religious hypocrisy. Nothing which prompts such righteousness of conduct and attitude that some persecution is inevitable. It's even possible in some instances that everything these false prophets say is true. But because they leave out the difficult bits... They don't tell the whole truth, and their total message is false. That last sentence is, is, is the gist of it. It's possible that a false teacher, a false prophet, is saying things that taken individually are true statements. But when you say a lot of true things and you leave out a lot of other true things, it can make your entire message, the gist of your message, to be false. And so that would be what Jesus has in mind here. They might not be actively teaching against what Jesus taught. In fact, that would be too obvious. Jesus says they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're coming in in disguise. They're coming in in a way that um, doesn't make you, they don't walk in and you say, ah, that person's a false teacher. That person's a wolf, right? So they might not be actively teaching against what Jesus taught. They just tend to ignore certain teachings of Jesus that are what Carson here calls the difficult bits, Right? So their teaching seems plausible. It has the ring of plausibility to it. Just like the tabloids from old kind of learned that they could sell more if they made it seem a little bit more plausible to people. More people will buy into that truth. And, and so they, they kind of adjusted their sales methods to, to go along with that. So their teaching seems plausible. They can, they can pass at first glance as disciples but the collective effect of their teaching is false. It's destructive to the church. Okay? So what are the difficult bits that a lot of people leave out of the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, you could, you could just read the whole thing. <laughs> but chapter 5, he talks about pursuing peace and reconciliation with all people. That's the way of Christ. That's not the way of man. And a lot of people who claim to follow Christ and a lot of people who claim to represent Christ in the public um, in the public sphere, do everything they can to explain away that message of pursuing peace and reconciliation. Chapter 6, Jesus talked about embracing simplicity in our lives, in our inner and outer lives. But yet a lot of people who go out there representing Christ and, 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 and speaking about Christ in the public sphere 
have nothing to say about simplicity, but have a whole lot to say about how to boost your bank account and how to have the material things that you want. Chapter 7, Jesus talks about replacing angry judgment with compassion, compassionate care for other people. And that's not the way the world tends to work either. So throughout history, theologians have um, ignored some really plain teachings of Scripture. Now, don't say they're easy teachings, because like I said, these are the difficult bits. They're the hard parts to live out. But they're plainly stated. And the reason that a church, or the, the result of this, uh, is that a church can end up holding a lot of orthodox views and then going out and killing people who disagree with them. You look at church history and you get a lot of orthodoxy. You get a lot of true teachings about God in the metaphysical realm by people who are then arming themselves to go out and slaughter other people. That's how this happens. It's when you focus on those things that float out there in the ether, right? And you ignore the difficult bits of what Jesus says about how we relate to other people. So what we have to do is we have to say, we have to ask Jesus, continue to rebathe me, reimmerse me, rebaptize me, if you will, in your teachings, in your radical countercultural teachings. Make sure that I am immersed in those things so that my spirituality can be more Jesus-shaped all the time. So, that's a look at who the false prophets were to them when they, when they heard that message. How can we recognize them? So, that he, that Jesus talks about this fruit test, right? By, your, by their fruits, you will know them. By their fruit, you will know them. Watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Outwardly, they're ferocious wolves. How do you know who they are? By their fruit, Okay? So the plausibility of the false teachings that Jesus is talking about means that some test has to be found. And Jesus says that his test, it's not a doctrinal one, but it's an ethical one, the way they live their lives. So the question that follows that naturally is, how do we know if somebody's bearing good or bad fruit? Well, Jesus doesn't specify that in this message, but Paul does a pretty good job of giving a reasonable answer in Galatians when he gives the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, Paul's, and this is from the voice translation, it says this is, it's clear that our flesh entices us into practicing some of its most heinous acts, participating in corrupt sexual relationships, impurity, unbridled lust, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, arguing, jealousy, anger, selfishness, contentiousness, division, envy of others' good fortune, drunkenness, drunken revelry, and other shameful vices that plague humankind. That is the works of the flesh. And that is put in contrast to, so that's, so that's what the fruit of false teachers looks like. And that's put in contrast to what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces a different kind of fruit. Unconditional love, joy, peace, patience, kind-heartedness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You won't, you won't find any law opposed to fruit like that. So bad fruit looks like the works of the flesh. Good fruit looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Another way of saying this is the fruit of real faith, the fruit of true teaching, is the inner character of Christ. When someone displays in their life that they have an inner character that's been molded by Jesus then you know that their teachings are coming from a place of truth. Okay? But it has to go beyond inner qualities, and it does have to manifest itself in the lifestyle that we live. Right? 
John chapter 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So the things that we believe on the, in, on the inside, the, the, the inner convictions that we have and the, and, the, and the inner faith that we have has to be manifest in the life that we live. And that's going to be, so when, when, so when we have love for someone, if it doesn't manifest in the way we live, it's as if we didn't have it at all in the first place, right? Uh, this, this should be fairly common sense, but then when we apply it to the whole of the teaching of, of the Sermon on the Mount, it becomes more difficult to live. So, is the fruit of someone's life that they're actually following what Jesus teaches? That's the question. Now, of course, they may stumble. Nobody's going to follow Jesus' teaching perfectly all the time. The question is, do they stumble forward? James tells us that we all stumble in many ways. Nobody follows Jesus' message perfectly. But are they stumbling forward? The person who doesn't look like they're stumbling is somebody who's standing still, right? Um, They're not moving along with Jesus. Another thing that Dr. Carson said in his book on the Sermon on the Mount He's summarizing the Sermon on the Mount. He says, The fruit the Lord Jesus looks for is a life in growing conformity to the norms of the kingdom. Righteousness, transparent humility, purity, trusting and persistent prayerfulness, obedience to Jesus' words, truthfulness, love, generosity, and a rejection of all that's hypocritical. That's the fruit that Jesus looks for in the lives of those who teach his, His word. So, that's how we recognize them. We look at the fruit of their lives, right? Third question, who are the false believers? Could I be one of them? So, after talking about these false prophets, Jesus goes right into talking about the fact that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So there's, uh, the picture painted here is people who are calling out with passion, Lord. In fact, the doubling up of the Lord in both of those places, that, that, that word structure, when it's doubled up, it's for emphasis. It's supposed to indicate that there's a passion behind what they're saying here. And there's nothing wrong with having a passion, when you call out to, to the Lord, what I'm saying is, or what, what this passage is saying, is that having a passion about your faith isn't enough. Okay? So these people have a passion for their faith. These people also um, are able to perform supernatural uh, works. They're, they have charismatic gifts. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not enough. To have the gifts that God's given you as, as ways that you can lift people up, um, nothing wrong with that. But that by itself isn't enough. You cannot look at somebody who's a passionate person and who's got a lot of gifts that God has granted them and automatically conclude that that she's a woman of God. You can't do that. You have to look at the fruit. What's she teaching in light of the teachings of Jesus? How's she living in light of of Jesus' teaching and in light of his example? Verse 23, at the very end of this text that we're looking at, he says, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. That word new is, a, is the word gnosko in, in, in the Greek. And it talks about an intimate, experiential, um, relational knowledge of someone. He says, I never, of course, he knows all of our names, right? 
But I never knew you. I never knew knew you, right? Um, and since he never knew us, or knew the, the people that he's addressing here, he says, away from me, you evildoers. That's the NIV translation. Other translations will say lawbreakers or workers of lawlessness. So it's interesting. He says, I never knew you because you were, you were lawless. You were breaking the law. But the irony of that is that Jesus has been spending the entire Sermon on the Mount basically teaching us a, a type of spirituality that transcends the law. But now he says that the people that aren't following him are the people that are breaking the law. So which is it, Jesus? Are you, are you calling us to the law or are you not calling us to the law? Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is he's calling us to the heart of the law, not merely to the shell of it or to the appearance or to the surface of what the law is getting at. It's ironic, in, in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of God. So our, our, our righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were the ones who learned Scripture, who memorized Scripture, who studied Scripture, who tried to live the Bible verse by verse as much as anybody ever has. But Jesus says our righteousness has to exceed theirs. And Jesus even acknowledged that that's who these people were because in John 5, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But here's the problem. He goes on to say in John 5, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come, you, like, excuse me, but yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So your righteousness needs to surpass those who are focused on every uh, jot and tittle of the law, uh, to take another King James phrase, 24-7. They're, they're living verse by verse. They're, my wife's laughing at me because I said jot and tittle. <laughs> Everybody's laughing at me. Everybody's laughing at me. I didn't put it in the Bible. So we're supposed to surpass the righteousness of those, of those people, of the Pharisees, the ones who, are, who are, have their heads buried in Scripture all the time. Nothing wrong with having your head buried in Scripture. But the way they were taking those things and applying them to people was wrong. Okay? Uh, so Jesus says your righteousness should surpass those people. In fact, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us your righteousness needs to be more like who? Maybe the tax collectors, prostitutes, children? What? So there's, there's surprises in both directions. There's the hyper-religious people that are missing the mark. And then there's the people on the other side who seem to have really messed up lives to us on the surface, but they have a hunger for God. And they're walking in the right direction. They might be stumbling, but they're stumbling forward. Right? They, Jesus says, are closer to the kingdom than people who have their nose in the book the entire time and are missing the heart of the message. So rather than talking about the letter of the law, Jesus points us to the heart of the law. And these religionists who, the Judaizers, the Pharisees, who keep pointing to the letter of the law, they're the real lawbreakers, as ironic as that is. Matthew 23, Jesus uh, points out a contrast between the inner person and the outer person. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside... They're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. 
He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That word wickedness is the same word that was used um, earlier that we talked about that means lawlessness. I never knew you depart from me, you evildoers or you lawbreakers. Same word there. Okay, um, so notice the inside-outside contrast of what Jesus says here. If, if you were to come over and I were to pick a cup, a cup off the ground and, you know, a kid's sandbox, kind of wipe off the outside of it and then put a bunch of water in it and hand you to drink, you probably wouldn't take it, right? Because the inside of it's still dirty. And that's what Jesus, he says, that's, that's what your life is like. You're polishing the outside of it. You look really good to the outside person because you're following the law. You're, you're praying when you're supposed to pray. You're, you're reading the Bible when you're supposed to read the Bible. You're showing up at synagogue when you're supposed to show up at synagogue. You're doing all the right things, but inside you're filthy. He says, you're like a, you're like a tomb that somebody goes and they, they whitewash it. They get it clean and sparkly on the outside as much as possible, acting like it's, it changes what's on the inside because inside is still full of death and stench. He says, that's what you are when you lose the heart of God in what you're doing. It's the inner world that makes you a lawbreaker. Okay, so what do we do with all this? First of all, real quickly, we'll look at gifts versus fruit. Spiritual gifts, especially overtly supernatural, charismatic gifts, whatever you want to call them, those are not by themselves a sign of true faith. In fact, if you look back in 1 Samuel 19, um, that was one of the episodes where Saul and his men were pursuing David. David had been anointed by God to be the next king, but Saul was still living. Saul hated David, so he's trying to, he's trying to catch him and kill him. Right? So David and his men, they're on their way to kill David, and God wants to thwart their plan, so the Spirit comes down on them, and Saul's men actually start to prophesy. So even when these people are God's enemy, God prophesies through them. So the fact that somebody's able to, somebody that has gifts of some sort that seem supernatural to us, or maybe even they are supernatural, that by itself doesn't mean that those people are on God's side. There may be a bigger picture at play. Also in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, don't quench the spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. Don't disregard people that have gifts. But test them all, it says. Hold on to what's good and reject every kind of evil. They are worthy of testing. So don't trust the teachings of Christian leaders just because they happen to, they appear to have gifts of some sort. You don't write off someone because they're gifted. Uh, you think about Moses. He had a stutter, didn't think he could, he could communicate God's will very well. Um, so you don't write off someone because they apparently lack gifts. But the important thing for all of us is not the gifts, but the fruit that people bear in their lives. Okay? Second point of application, faith versus works. So with all of this that we've talked about, does that mean salvation is really about faith or is it about the things that we, that we do in life? If you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15 tells us Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But then Genesis 26 reflects back on that same event and he tells us why Abraham was created with righteousness and it says, because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him. So which is it? Faith or obedience? And the biblical answer is yes. 
That's what it is. Um, I don't know when it happened exactly, but sometime after the Protestant Reformation, seems to me like Christians got really paranoid about anything that referenced works. And it's a paranoia that's not inspired by the scripture, uh, as far as I can tell. And, it's, and what it's done is it's distorted our view of salvation. Um, if you trust someone, you listen to them. If you trust someone, you do what they say because you trust them. So Jesus says, Jeff, do you trust me? And I say, yes. And Jesus says, well, come walk with me. We're going this direction. Just walk with me. And I do it because I trust him. The person who trusts, walks, learns, grows, they follow where Jesus is going. By definition, that's what it is to have faith. Okay? And some people, they create a theology out of um, kind of an intellectual type of belief or an intellectual type of faith that says, yes, I trust you, Jesus. I believe in you. I got my doctrine straight. I study you. And Jesus has already started taking off walking. And they're still saying, standing here saying, yes, I got the right teachings. I understand the right doctrines. My theology is true. And Jesus is way down there now. They say that while they're standing still and Jesus is on the move. So we can't do that. Faith and works God expects both of them of us. And when we're looking at teachers, when we're trying to judge someone's fruit, we need to look at both. So, we're getting close to the end. He ends in verse 23 by saying, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The question I want to leave you with is, who does Jesus say is the judge in this passage? It's himself, right? So earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already claimed authority over Scripture itself. Remember all those statements that he's made that he says, you've heard it said, and then he quotes a Scripture, and he says, but I say to you, and he takes it down to the heart of the matter. You've heard it said, don't kill, but I say to you, don't even be angry at someone. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but, I've said, but, I, but I tell you, don't lust in your heart after someone, and he goes on and on and on. By doing that, Jesus isn't pit pitting Scripture against Scripture and saying, my Scripture trumps your Scripture. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, I have authority over Scripture itself because I'm giving you a new Torah to follow. That's what he's, telling you. That's what he's doing by doing that. So he claims authority over Scripture. And then at the end of the book of Matthew, before he gives the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then in this passage that we're looking at here... He talks about the judgment and what he's going to say to people in judgment over them. You see, the thing, the thing that I want to bring out in this is that Jesus sees himself as more than just a prophet. He is a prophet, but he sees himself as more than a prophet. And the, the way that we see this is because when Jesus speaks on behalf of God, which is what a prophet does, but when Jesus does it, he talks like he's actually God. He says things that a prophet wouldn't have said but that God would. So as we follow Jesus, we do so with great confidence, with great trust, because he's not just pointing, a, pointing the way for us. He is the way for us. And the question for us tonight is, do we have the courage to enter through that narrow gate and, take, and walk that hard path to follow him? Pray with me, if you will. God, we love you. We call you Jesus because, as we sang a little bit ago, we are your sons and daughters. We wear your name. We wear your name because we want to be like you. 
We want to be your, uh, your body in this world. And so as we try to follow you, as we try to adopt your characteristics, we pray that we'll take the message that you've given us in the Sermon on the Mount seriously. And as we look at people who are leading us and who are directing our minds, we pray that, we'll, um, that you'll give us the ability to discern what's true and what's not so that we're, so that we're not fooled by wolves in sheep's clothing. And we pray that we'll focus on the, um, the inner life. We'll focus on what's going on inside us with our relationship with you so that we don't fool ourselves into thinking that having the right doctrine or having the right um, exterior life is what matters most to you. Invade our lives, God, and make us yours. In Jesus' name we pray.